The ball is lying in directly in front of him, between him and the green. is about a 40 or 50 foot, just full pine tree. And there's just no way that he can get around it, no way he can go above it. He doesn't know what to do. And he stands there for several minutes trying to decide what to do. And the old man comes over to him and says, you know, Sonny, when I was your age, I had a shot just like that. And I hit it right over the top of that tree. You know, and now being a young guy, he's just challenged right there now. And so he just, he goes, fine. He cranks up, hits his ball as hard as he can. He hits about 30 feet up on top of the tree. The tank hits off three or four branches, bounces back, comes flying back at his face. He ducks, dives on the ground. The thing just misses, killing him. And he's stunned. He doesn't know what to say. And the old man continued. He said, of course, when I was your age, that there tree was only about four feet tall. <laughs> yeah. You know, quite often in life, we're easily swayed into actions that are both foolish and destructive. And uh, perhaps as you look back at the past year, you found that there are way too many occasions in your life such as those. And as you look forward to the new year, you have vowed not to repeat those same mistakes. Many make such New Year's resolutions year after year after year with the sincerest intentions only to find yourself failing miserably. For example, every year I vow to be more sensitive. (laughs) Not to be so offensive, Danny. And yet I fail and the reason is simple. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. And that's the struggle that we have and it brings us to the message of a week ago, the problem with mankind, you may recall, is that we are born with a nature in rebellion against God and the truth of God's word and the truth of God's ways. The Bible tells us that none of us, not one of us is righteous, no, not one. That each and every one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That through Adam, sin entered into the world, and with sin came death, and the soul that sins shall surely die. Each and every one of us are like sheep who have gone astray, and we've turned our back on God because of the nature that is within us in rebellion against God and the things of God. And that's why Jesus said, if you recall from last week, that unless a man is born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. He said, you mustn't be surprised that I say you must be born again. Because that which is flesh is flesh and that which is spirit is spirit. Unless one is born again or born from above, we shall not see the kingdom of God. In essence, what he's saying is is that unless you and I end up with a divinely imparted spiritual nature, one that is alive to God and dead to sin, we will never, ever, ever on our best day have a chance to get to heaven. Period. And in Titus chapter 3, this impartation of this new life or this born again that we discussed or born from above, to understand it, we need to recognize that it's a work of God. In Titus chapter 3, starting with verse 3, we read, read these words, For we ourselves once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful hating one another. Notice what he's saying is that we ourselves once were this way, but something drastically occurred within the nature of the believer that now things are new. He says, but 
the contrast is the old way of living and the old nature, but this new life that we now have. When this kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, the word appeared is when He was made manifest to us. It's the word that we have when you wake, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That which we celebrate at Christmas is the appearance of God in human flesh on the face of the earth before all of mankind. So that when we see the Lord Jesus Christ, we behold His glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. When mankind gets a good look at who Jesus Christ is, we see God embodied in human flesh. And because of that, we see the new nature demonstrated before us. God is love. Love is patient and kind and gentle and good. Love doesn't take into an account a wrong suffered nor seek its own. It's not easily provoked. We see that in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, by the way, as we look at this, God and our Savior are one and the same. And so again, the argument is very clear. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. Those who say that Jesus is an angel or anything other than God in human flesh, they have not read the Bible. Because when God our Savior appeared, who was that? In the person of Jesus Christ. He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness. So often as we enter into a new year, you make New Year's resolutions based upon what we will do this year. You know, I'm going to try to be a better person. I'm going to try to do this, that, and the other thing. And for people who are trying to work their way into heaven, those, those deeds fail miserably. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so they begin to get frustrated with, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, that, or the other thing. I, you know, and, and the irony is not lost upon me. I mean, all you've got to do is look around and September 11th occurred and the next Sunday churches were filled, synagogues were filled, institutions of whatever worship were filled with people who are now all seeking God, all going to turn a new leaf, all going to ch- turn a new chapter in their life. And as the days or weeks or months have passed, the attendance has now gone back to what it was before. See, that, that initial hunger for spiritual things, that initial, you know, seeking out and crying out after God, when, that, when the initial uh, sense of urgency is gone, we go back to exactly who we are and that old nature that's in rebellion against God and the things of God. See, like I mentioned, you can dress up a pig, but a pig is still a pig. And we need to recognize and understand that it's a nature that, that we have the problem. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but... According to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When the sinner turns to God, broken and contrite, humble before God, seeking forgiveness, the Bible says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will never turn down or despise. When a sinner, repentant, seeking forgiveness, broken and humble before God and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, death and resurrection, God instills a new nature in that person. One that understands the things of God and also has a desire to do the will of God. For Christ now lives within us. The term in Christ also refers to the fact that we are not only in him, but he is in us. I came across the following story that illustrates the truth of the workings of the Lord Jesus Christ within the life of a believer. So shortly after the armistice of World War I, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse visited the battlefields of Belgium.
In the first year of the war, the area around the city of Mons was the scene of the great British retreat. For miles, but in the last year of the war, it was the scene of a greater German retreat. And for miles to the west of the city, the roads were lined with artillery, tanks, trucks, and other materials of war which the Germans had abandoned in their hasty flight. It says, It was a lovely day in spring. The sun was shining, not a breath of wind was blowing. As Dr. Barnhouse walked along examining the German war material, he noticed that leaves were falling from the great trees that arched above the road. He brushed at a leaf that had blown against his chest. It became caught in the belt of his uniform. And as he picked it up and he pressed it in his fingers, it disintegrated. Says Dr. Barnhouse looked up curiously and saw several other leaves falling from the trees. But it was not autumn and there was no wind to blow them off. They were the leaves that had outlived the winds of autumn and the frosts of winter. Now they were falling seemingly without cause. Then he realized that the most potent force of all was causing them to fall. It was spring and the sap was beginning to run. The buds were beginning to push from within. And from down deep beneath the dark earth, the roots were taking life and sending it along the trunk, branch and twig. Until that life expelled every bit of deadness that remained from the previous year. It was, as a great Scottish preacher termed it, the expulsive power of a new affection. I know of no clearer illustration of how the new life of Christ expels the old than that story. Year after year or season after season, we hang on to those things that have become part of our, or were, of our old nature. We hang on to those habits. We hang on to those behavior and those practices that had become, you know, so natural to us because that which they were. But the Apostle Paul says that if any man's in Christ, he tells the Galatian church, he said, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is I who no longer live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I live in this flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. To the Corinthians, I began to mention, he said, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature, and all things pass away, and all things become new. And that's our focus for today. All things become new. The expulsive work of Christ within the life of the believer as from within he begins to push out that which was old and bring in that which is new. And just as the leaves began to fall off the tree, even though there was the, 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 the winds of autumn and the frosts of winter didn't shake those leaves off, that which was within began to push them out and were pl- replaced with something new. It's the most natural thing for God to infuse in those who are repentant and turning to God this impartation of a new nature when all things pass away and all things become new. So if you've got your Bible, we'll go back to the book of Acts chapter 19 and take a look at what we find here that takes place when all things become new. In Acts 19, starting with verse 21, we read these words. It says, now after these things were finished, Paul proposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And and having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. It says, and about that time there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. 
For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out and saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let them. And also some of the uh, Asiarchs, who were also friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And the majority did not know what cause they had come together. And some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward. And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And after quieting the multitude, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell from heaven? He said, since then these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who neither are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemies, blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and the proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's affair, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we shall be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. In this particular passage, we find that uh, if you go back to verse 21, we're told that after these things were finished, and if you recall from our previous study, what these things were, were the fact that the outworking of Christ in the hearts of new believers was seen and evident in verse 17 where we're told this became known to all both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus and fear fell upon them and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was being magnified. It says that many also of those who had believed noticed that there was an outworking of this new nature that took place that those who had turned from sin and turned to God and trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior born again or born from above had a new nature and part of the new nature now was to be repentant of sin or turning from those things that they had done in the past to the new life that was now present in Christ. And so what they had done was, it's told, it tells us very clearly in verse 18, that those who had believed, and again, I cannot emphasize this truth enough. Believing is something that happens at a specific historic moment in the life of an individual who turns from sin turns to God, throws themselves on the mercy of God and seeks God's forgiveness for sin in their life, for falling short of God's standard. 
And at that time, believing the plan of God that Jesus Christ came to die upon the cross for your sin, rose again for you. And by believing in Him and trusting in Him as your Savior, you are born again from above. Those who had believed, I cannot emphasize this enough because there is so much misunderstanding, confusion, and deception in this matter. There are many who believe that they are okay with God because they go to church, because they read a Bible, because they've been baptized, because they've been whatever. All the external rituals are that are, are present in the world today. And the reality is this. Jesus did not say, unless a man is baptized, he shall see the kingdom of God. He did not say, unless a man is a church member, he shall see the kingdom of God. He did not say, unless a man does good deeds, he shall not see the kingdom of God. He said, unless one is born again or from above, he shall not see the kingdom of God. The new birth is a, is an, a divine act of God in the heart of a repentant sinner who turns from sin, turns from God, and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, and the power of his resurrection for your sin personalize it. These people had believed individually and yet they formed a collective group of all people who had believed individually. When they had believed, then God began to do a work in their heart. And the heart, in, the, in this case, that new nature that understood the things of God, understood they wanted to be pleasing to God, were convicted. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. They were convicted of sin in their life And they had an option at that point to either confess their sin or to continue to live in it. These folks chose to confess. It tells us very clearly. They kept coming publicly. They kept confessing before God the dirty closet, so to speak, of their life. They came forward and disclosed that which was hidden to other men but not hidden to God. And God helped them in their spring cleaning and cleaned out their house and their closet of all the the dirt and the crud and the sin that they were still entertaining in their life. See, we don't like to talk about sin in our culture because it's not politically correct. But it's biblically accurate. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. And as we get into the presence of a holy God, we cannot help but to respond the way that that Isaiah responded when he said, Oh God, forgive me, for I am a man of unclean lips. The closer that we draw to perfection, the more readily it becomes apparent of our flaws. The closer that we walk with the Lord, the more time that we spend with Him in His presence, the more clearly we begin to see the dirt in our life. And at that point, we have a choice to make. To either deny that and to continue to live that way, or to trust God and say, Lord, you know what? This new desire that I have in my life that comes with the new nature is not my will any longer be done, but yours. And if that is displeasing to you, then I confess my sin. And they brought all their books of magic and all that went along with it. And they brought it before the assembly. And they threw it all down and they bonfired it all and they just burned it all up. And they they kept coming. They kept disclosing. They kept confessing. As they saw one person confessing their sin, they began to be even more convicted about the fact that I should be doing that too. 
And as they came forward, the next person came forward, another person came forward. It's amazing how that works, that when some person just says, God, you know what, use me, and I don't care what anybody thinks of me, I'm going to go ahead and do what's right. And they take that step forward. We see it all the time. If you've never trusted in Christ and God's speaking to you today, then stand up today, come down front today. And as soon as one person does, it's almost the boldness that it just needs one person working in the heart of, another, of that individual God that says, okay, you know what, I don't care if anybody thinks of me, I don't really care because this is between me and God and I am going to take a stand right now here publicly. And all of a sudden you get more people who say, you know what, then I am going to too. See, and that's exactly what happened. When they began confessing their sins, it was contagious. It was effective. And that's the way it's supposed to be. See, they kept coming. They kept confessing. They kept disclosing But I want you to understand the order of events very clearly. This happened after they had believed. It happened after they were given a new nature. It happened after old things pass away. All things become new. And you're to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. To walk in the new nature. Now there may have been people who saw what was going on and wanted to get in on the act. But they had no new nature. Those are the people who came forward and said, if they're doing it, I'm going to do it. But they're also the ones that got very frustrated and were miserable beyond this particular day. Because you know what? While they may have been willing to change externally, their nature was still the same. And they were like the pig dressed up and, you know, with the Chanel number five on and sitting at the dinner table. And the door opened, they ran outside and jumped, you know, immediately jumps back in the mud puddle. Because that's the nature. That's the way it is. And so as we look at this, we begin to understand that they, they began to disclose their sin before God. They began to burn their trash. They, and then what's, what I love about what I read in verse 21 as it applies to this particular passage is that notice what we're told here. It says, now after these things were finished, Paul proposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Part of the new, the new nature, the new life in Christ, is that that life is a life that's filled with planning, and it's not haphazard, nor is it random. There's planning that's involved. In other words, Paul made spiritual plans. We're told he proposed in his heart, another word for it is his, he determined in his spirit or his heart to go to Jerusalem, to go to Rome, to send you know, those who were ministering with him into Macedonia... He made a determination. In other words, what Paul did was he made spiritual plans. He set spiritual goals. You know, as I read these words, I was immediately reminded of the life of Daniel. In the first chapter of Daniel, we're told that he determined in his heart not to defile himself with the king's food. He made a plan or determined. He set a goal that he would not partake of the food that would defile him before God that was offered to him by man. He made a determination in his heart not to defile himself. The new life in Christ, where all things pass away, all things become new, involves a plan, not only a plan of God in which he instills that new nature, but once that new nature is instilled in us, it involves a determination or a plan in the heart of the believer. And what I refer to planning is very simple. We must propose or plan in our hearts to set spiritual goals. For example... How many, by show of hands, have set some type of, made some type of New Year's resolution? Some type of New Year's resolution. 
Yeah, you come on now. You go, well, maybe, but he may call me and ask me what it was, and then I'm going to be accountable. A friend of mine was, has got a sports program, and he's on television, and, and I happened to turn it when he was on because, you know, I told you, I don't watch sports that often, and it was a very rare thing that I would catch him um, doing, doing what he does. But it said, yeah, yeah, I made a New Year's resolution. You know, the camera makes me look a lot heavier, so I have made a resolution. I have determined to lose 20 pounds this year. And when I saw him the other day, I said, what are you, crazy? You, you, on national television, you said you're going to lose 20 pounds. You know how many people, every time they walk up to you, going, I don't know. I don't know. How's it coming? <laughs> you know, they're going to see you eat in restaurants and say, uh-uh-uh. remember your goal. See, I mean, you know, we, we make New Year's resolutions. We make them a health and fitness. I'm going to go on a diet. I'm going to join a club. I'm going to start to run. I'm going to start to exercise. You know, I, I'm going I'm to do something about my relationship with my spouse or with my children. You know, we're going to have this year. We're going to have a budget. You know, financially, we're going to have a budget. Look at those people smiling going, duh, duh, duh. I know, because you just got your visa bills because of Christmas, and it's like, what, what's that? Oh, we're going to have a budget this year, you know. So we set all those plans, you know, career plans, you know, educational plans, you know, we, we, we make goals. Now, I'm going to get very personal here. How many, as you're making these New Year's resolutions, have actually made or set goals that are spiritual in nature. What plan have you made for God? What goals have you set for Him? What goals have you set for your relationship with Him? With Him and for Him. I cannot help but see that the new nature, the new life in Christ is a purposeful life. One that redeems the time wisely. One that is not random nor haphazard. I'll give you an example. About a year ago, a friend of mine committed his life to Christ. He had believed at a point in time. He called me after that and said, I just want to let you know that I've given my life to Christ. And I want to grow and learn in my spiritual life. And I had challenged him before and some other guys before that, you know, anybody that would like to, I'd like to meet and we'll have a time where we'll just study the Bible and pray together and hold each other accountable. It's a time of discipleship. And he said, and if that offer is still available, I want to meet with you. Let's meet. For the last year, over a year, we've met when he's in town. We've met every other week. When he's in town every week, we meet every week. Sometimes we meet for two to three hours, but we meet. It was determined. It's purposeful. It's planned. Are we still on for 9 o'clock Saturday? I can't make it Saturday, but can we meet Friday afternoon? Is there another time we can do it? But it's planned. It's determined. It's purposeful. And it is not coincidental that he is growing in his faith and his love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because like newborn babes, we're to long for the pure milk of the word that's so in it we will, re- we will grow in respect to salvation. It's purposeful. It's planned. Linda had a group of gals, four gals, that wanted to do the same thing. And they began to meet. And they've met over a year now. And during the baseball season, she met with another group of gals. And they met all during the season. It's purposeful. It's planned. It's exciting to see. You know, can you get together next Wednesday? Can we make some changes in our schedule? It's purposeful. It's planned. It's not random, nor is it haphazard. I made a, a vow this year to... I got a journal. And I, and I, I don't like... The, I, I don't do journals. Um, 
because, you know, I'm just not a journal-doing kind of guy. But I wanted to, to, to increase my time, other than preparing and studying to teach Bible study, I just wanted a time just to spend personally with the Lord. And I got a, a journal, and every day I spend time just with God in that journal, and I share or write whatever it is that God puts on my heart. It's purposeful. It's planned. It's determined. It's a life of discipline and a life of dedication. If you aim for nothing, you will hit it every time. The point is this, and I wrote in my journal. And this is the last time you will hear this, by the way. (laughs) On January 1st, I wrote, set goals for God. See, Paul was greatly used by God for God's sake because he was willing, he was obedient, and he was purposeful. We got a group of guys that we meet every other Tuesday night just to pray. It was something we planned. It's determined. It's on our schedules. And unless something comes up, that's what we do. And this isn't to, you know, make anybody think one way or the other of me or anybody else. This is to give you personal illustrations of how to put into practice the things that we say that we want to do. See, the question is again, what goals have you set for God? How about goals of discipleship? We're to go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's commanded us to do that. It's not optional. There are marching orders. And yet at the same time, I'm going to ask you a very personal question. Who was the last person that you discipled? When is the last time you met with another person and mentored them in the faith? That's our marching orders. It's not an option. He hasn't recalled it. He hasn't rescinded it. That's something we're supposed to do. Who sat down in their New Year's resolution and said, This year, I am going to disciple so-and-so. But sharing the gospel, going to all the world, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts of the world. Go to the world, you'll be my witnesses, you'll share with others the great love of God that's found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. How you came to faith in Christ, how he instilled in you a new nature, how the old things have passed away and all things have become new. Who are you going to share with this year? I know as you look back, you go, man, I wish I would have done it last year. I wish I would have discipled somebody. I wish I would have shared more of my faith. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. Hey, start to do it. Determination. Proposing in your heart. Asking God to give you the strength to follow through on what you say you'll do. You know, it's a wonderful thing. You know, we've got tapes that are free. There's no excuse not to just hand them out. You go, man, that was a great message. Man, that really, I wish so-and-so were here. They're not. Take it to them. They can listen anytime that they want. There is no excuse. Finances is not excuse. The only excuse is your willingness to be used by God in a great way. Paul was used by God because he was obedient. He was willing. He set goals. I'm going here. I'm going there. I'm taking up an offering here. I'm taking up collection there. I'm going to send my disciples here to minister there. I'm going to check on the churches. I'm going to Rome. And I want to get to Spain. He set goals. Follow the Lord's leading. Sometimes God closed the door. Sometimes he'd open another one. He'd close one, open another one. But he, he set goals. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he writes to the church at Corinth. He says, hey, propose in your heart to give. God loves a cheerful, generous giver. 
It's amazing how many people sit in December and they look back on the year and go, oh, my giving's so far behind. Why? What plan did you have? What, how did you propose in your heart to give as a reflection of what God has blessed in your life? We honor the Lord from the first fruits as a reminder that everything that we have is His. We're stewards, we're managers. We're to give back in return for what He has blessed us with so that it's a remembrance, an act of worship. You get to the end of the year, you do your taxes and go, contributions, what percentage of that is of your gross income? And you go, well, do you tithe on the gross or do you tithe on the net? I ask people, ask questions like that. I just laugh. It's like, you want blessed on the gross or on the net? You know, it's like the story I heard about the three guys. Hey, here's how they determine how to give. The first guy goes, hey, you know what? Every week I take and I cash my paycheck. Then I go out in the yard and I draw a big circle. And I stand in the middle of the circle and I throw up all the cash. And whatever comes down in the circle, I give to God. Whatever's outside the circle, you know, and he waits for the Santa Ana winds to blow. Oh, it's ever outside the circle. The other guy goes, that's amazing. I do the same thing. I throw it up and whatever comes down in the circle, we keep. And whatever's outside the circle, we give to God. And the third guy just smiles, look at the other guys and says, well, you know what? I do the same thing a little differently. I throw up all the cash up in the air. Whatever stays up, God can keep. Whatever comes down, it's men. You know? That's kind of like the way that we are, you know? It's like, wow, see, he proposed in his heart. We need to have a plan, a game plan. And the game plan always requires action. Take action. Paul said, hey, you know what? I proposed to go to Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem. I proposed to check on the status of the churches. I checked on the status of the churches. I proposed to go to Rome. He went to Rome. And I believe he got to Spain myself. You know, whatever he decided to do, he did unless God clearly shut the door. But even if God shut the door, he kept moving. He kept moving. He's like Pac-Man. Remember that little Pac-Man character? He's like, you know, when the roadblock, you go back this way, that way. You know what? That's what we should be like, Pac-Man for Jesus. There's a word picture. Take that home with you. What is he, people shake their head like, oh, man. You know, but, but seriously, we know we need to be moving for the Lord's sake. Set goals. Make plans. He proposed. He went. He did everything he proposed to do. All things become new. And the evidence is that our resolutions become more spiritual in nature. We need to be people, as I say often when it comes to giving, whose, whose standard of giving increases while our standing of living, standard of living decreases. We need to be more generous towards the things of God. As we look ahead to a new year, can you set some goals for God? Discipleship goals, sharing the gospel, personal growth goals. What Bible study are you going to get involved in? How are you going to be challenged individually to learn and to grow? And like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, can you set goals or plans to give to the Lord's work? You know, we get all hung up on percentages. and Hey, you know what? Start somewhere and then be consistent. I'm going to give X amount every week. I'm going to give X amount every month. However the Lord blesses, I'm going to give a determined amount, percentage, whatever it is, because you've got to start somewhere. And I don't get hung up on if it's 10% or 5%. If the tithe really means a tenth. And if that really was a tithe because it was actually 30-some percent, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know what? Stop looking for excuses to get out of being obedient and look for ways to be obedient. That's why Paul could say, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We walk by faith and not by sight. We trust God's leading in our life and his spirit within us, telling us what God wants us to do. 
and we walk in obedience and we do what God calls us to do. Set goals for God in 2002. The second thing that we need to be prepared for is that not only is this this life a life that involves planning, but it is also a life that involves persecution. Let's face it. The Christian life involves persecution. One lesson that history clearly teaches is that that effectiveness for the Lord and persecution go hand in hand. Notice that in verse 23. And about that time there arose no small disturbance. I like that. No small disturbance. We'll find out in a minute what he's talking about. There arose no small disturbance. And what was it concerning? It was concerning the way. The way is, a, is a, um, fr- a name that was given to the early Christians. It derives itself from when Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, which he is. And so those who followed him were followers of the way. And so the disturbance, uh, the, central, the central reason for the disturbance was the way. When the word of God is taught, it will disturb people. When the word of God is taught in, in, in the full counsel of God, it will disturb people. And it will disturb those who, number one, have the old nature and that are in rebellion against God because it will make it very clear to them that they are in rebellion against God and that they are condemned, that they are on their way to hell, that they need a Savior, and it's very offensive to people. It is disturbing to Christians who want to continue to live in sin because we are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We've got a new nature. We're to live a different way. Old things pass away. All things become new. It's a very disturbing disturbing truth. The way disturbs people. God's way disturbs people. Only one way to heaven disturbs people. You're going to hell if you don't trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Disturbs people. It shakes people up. They don't want to hear. And the reason is simple. Because the light has come into the darkness and shines. And they hated the light because it exposed the, the evil deeds of those who hid under the cloak of darkness. It exposed sinners for the fact that they are exactly that. Sinners. There was no small disturbance concerning the way. You cannot get around the fact that this new nature we have in Christ will bring persecution in our life if we walk in obedience to God and uphold His truth. It will offend people. It will aggravate people. But it's still the truth that will also set them free. Jesus asked the question, and it's one of irony and one that we should all understand, but I'm amazed at how many Christians are surprised when they are persecuted for their faith. He said, don't forget, the world hated me and put him to death. What makes you think it's going to like you? Hey, geniuses. You're following me. They hated me. They put me to death. Get a clue. If you walk my way, they will hate you too. If you teach my truth, they will hate you too. Don't be surprised when you're persecuted. You know, in this word we shall have tribulation. But don't fear, for I have overcome the world. You follow that? It's amazing to me how many of us, it's like as soon as we're persecuted for our faith, we go, oh, we better stop doing that. It's like the illustration that that keeps coming back in my mind. It's kind of like a person who's running with, have you ever noticed that a person running with the football, people go after him? Seriously, it's like, you know, if a quarterback drops back and he's got a football and he's going to throw it, people want to kill him. But, you know, after he throws the football, no one can touch him. I mean, can you imagine a professional athlete running through the line, everybody's coming after him, they're trying to hit him, and he just goes, it's because of this. And he throws the ball up in the air. If I don't have this, they don't come after it. I just throw it up, I give it up. 
I said, you know, I mean, you know what you call a professional athlete who does that? Unemployed. <laughs> but coach, they were coming after me. And I figured it out. If I didn't have the ball, they left me alone. It was beautiful. You should have seen it. And I threw it real far and they all went and ran after it. Just like a dog. Go, fetch. And they all went after it. See, but it's not an option for the Christian to throw the gospel away, to throw biblical truth away, to to throw living a life that's pleasing to God away, because when we throw all that away, everybody likes us again. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will know what the will of God is, that which is good and excellent and perfect. Don't blend in with the crowd. Don't go with the flow. Be salt. Be light. Commit to do that in 2002. Make a difference. Set goals for God. And expect to be persecuted. And blessed are those who are persecuted in my name's sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. So many times we're just persecuted because we're stupid people. If you're going to be persecuted, be persecuted for your love for the Lord and the word of God and his truth. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of the Lord. Isn't that awesome? When's the last time you were persecuted for the Lord's sake? Set a goal this year. 2002, I want to be persecuted for the Lord's sake. I guarantee you, no one is going to make that New Year's resolution. So make this resolution. Lord, use me. And as a byproduct of being used, you will be persecuted. Get used to it. And there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. Now check it out. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing, oh, no little business. No small disturbance, no little business. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. Notice this. The persecution came because of what? Because they were making a fortune selling little trinkets of the goddess Artemis to people saying you got to worship this goddess and so therefore everybody needs one. And so he brought everybody together and, and stated the obvious. Hey, you know what? If this dude keeps teaching this truth, we are going out of business. If the word of God continues to be taught and people accept the word of God or the message and they turn from sin, they turn to God, they trust in Christ, we're going out of business because nobody's going to want our stupid little trinkets because the message was, hey, you know what? Our God who created all things, the heavens and the earth, is not to be served by little idols that are made with human hands. You don't need to worship little idols. Worship the creator. Worship the Lord Jesus Christ. But you don't have to have that little trinket in your house anymore. You don't have to set up your little altar. You don't have to burn your little candles. You don't have to talk to something that's inanimate and can't hear you, can't respond, and can't do anything for you. That was the message of the gospel. And notice it was successful. Because he said, hey, you know what? Notice this. You see in here in verse 26, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. He turned their world, Paul turned the world upside down, and there's three things I want to share with you that have to do with you and I and our effectiveness as we look forward to this year. Number one. One person can make all the difference of the world if that one person is walking in obedience with the Lord. You can be used by God in your family, in your business, in your school, on your team, 
in your community. You, one person, can make all the difference in the world if you are sold out and dedicated to be using, being used by God. The whole world was turned upside down because Paul preached the truth of the gospel. And this guy recognized it. He says, I can see the handwriting on the wall. If he keeps preaching, people will keep, will keep coming to Christ. And if they come to Christ, they won't buy our idols and we're going to be out of business. One person can make all the difference in the world who's sold out to be obedient to Christ. The second thing is we've got to be pure as believers. They kept coming. They kept confessing. They kept disclosing. Today, what's your walk with the Lord like? I don't care if you've known Him for 20 years, 25 years. You've had a long list of great accomplishments that God has used you for His kingdom. What's your life with the Lord like here and now? What do you need to confess? Because God is not mocked. He cannot use a dirty vessel. Confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know the other reason that he was effective? And this is going to not be politically correct, but I don't care. Oh, I'm working on the sensitivity thing. Sorry about that. I do. I'm really concerned what you think. (laughs) But I'm going to share it anyway. He didn't boycott. He didn't call for consumers to stop spending. He didn't protest. He didn't picket. He didn't walk outside, you know, local Silversmith Union 666 with signs, you know, don't buy the idols, don't buy the idols, idol worshippers going to hell, don't buy the idols, you know. He didn't do any of that. You know what he did? He preached the Word of God. And as people came to faith in Christ, and as they were instilled with a new nature, old things passed away, all things became new, and that person had no use for an idol any longer. Let's not confuse people. We confuse people all the time. Stop drinking. Stop smoking. Stop doing drugs. Stop sexual immorality. Stop all of that. You know what? Hey, let's focus on trusting Christ and in the power of His resurrection. Put your faith and trust in Him. And you know what? The expulsive affection of a new love will drive out all those old desires. Because the believer will not have a desire to enter into a life of drunkenness or drug abuse or sexual immorality or pornography or anything else that you can think of. All things pass away and all things become new. See, the expulsive life of a, a new nature will drive out even those leaves that we're hanging on to. He'll drive it out as we learn and we grow and we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. The world around Paul recognized the power of the gospel, the power of the preaching of the word of God. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And when the heart was changed, the nature has changed, it no longer has a desire to do the things that were true of the old sin nature. Put aside anger and malice and clamor, Put aside sexual immorality and and coarse jesting and joking. Put aside drunkenness and anger and put aside lying and cheating and stealing. Put aside all of those things because you've got a new nature. And walk in obedience with Him. It was no small disturbance because the way, the truth, the life, the Word of God was being being preached to the culture. It was no little business. They were making a fortune and because they were making a fortune, they hated the gospel. 
Pornographers hate the gospel. Those who sell alcoholic beverages hate the gospel. They would rather come up with you know, alternative counseling for drunks as long as drunks keep drinking. Because it's cheaper to give them this over here. I mean, think about this, this, the tobacco industry. Hey, you know what? Yeah, we'll set up this for you and that for you and we'll do all this stuff for you. But just keep smoking. Keep killing yourself. Keep giving us money and we'll give you a little back when you've got lung cancer and emphysema. They hate the gospel. Pornographers hate the gospel. The world hates the gospel. Because it affects their pocketbook. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, you can't love God and money at the same time. You'll despise one, you'll love the other. But you can't love them both. That's just the truth. Demetrius was afraid, and he was afraid for good reason. And if it wasn't just the financial issue, he also turned it religious. Notice what he said? Oh, and by the way, our religion will fall into disrepute. And, and, and we've spent a whole bunch of time building this religion. And he was more concerned about being religious than he was about being right with God. And there are a whole bunch of people in our culture who are more concerned about saving their religion than having the Lord Jesus Christ save their soul. But I've been involved in this church for 40 or 50 years. What do you mean that everything I've been told is wrong? My family, my friends, my community, we're all involved. What do you mean that's wrong? What do you mean Jesus Christ is the only way? What do you mean that's the only way to heaven? We've been working hard for years. Are you telling me that this isn't going to work for me? Don't you tell me that. They were more concerned with being religious than right with God. Our religion will fall into disrepute. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage. They were filled with rage. Notice that. Saying, great is Artemis, you know, of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion. And when it's confusion, God's not in it because God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of peace and a God of order. He's a God of purpose. He's a God of determination and planning. They rushed with one accord into the theater. They dragged Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And you know what? In the midst of all of this confusion, all this anger, all this hatred, you know what Paul had? He had the peace of God that surpassed all understanding. He said, you know what? Let me go in and talk to these people. Go in and talk to these people. Are you crazy? The last place you went, they stoned you and left you for dead. Another place, they threw you into prison. I mean, you know, you're like expecting persecution and you're walking right in the middle of it. But notice this, he had the peace of God. If God let him, he's completely trusting that God would take care of him. Isn't that great? How about that? When was the last time you had total peace and confidence that God would protect you in the midst of a hostile, persecuting environment? Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. They had the peace of God that surpassed all understanding, saying basically this, Lord, if this is how you're going to call me out, then this is how I'm going. But if it isn't, I trust that you can protect me in the midst of this impossible, seemingly impossible situation. It doesn't matter because I've committed myself to you and I'll trust in you. Now, in this particular case, there's safety in a multitude of counselors because Paul's friend said, you know what, I don't think that's a good idea. I mean, there's 25,000 lunatics there, and you're going to go walking in the middle of them, and they've got that mob mentality. I don't think you should do that. And all of Paul's friends convinced him it wasn't the right thing to do, and he listened, showing the humility of Paul that he would listen to these people who were around him, and so he didn't do it. But so then they were shouting one thing and some another, and the assembly was in confusion. The majority, look at this, did not know what caused it. They didn't even know what was going on, but they were mad. Can you imagine that? Everybody's shouting, screaming, they're all angry. It's like, you hear people going like this, what, what are we upset about again? 
Oh, I, I don't know. Let me ask around. Every, no, no one knew what they were upset about. They were still angry and upset. And that's a mob mentality. They don't even know what they're doing or why they're doing it. They just know one thing. I don't know, but I'm upset. Well, it would be good to know why, but they didn't even know why. Notice this. Some of them concluded it was Alexander, so they threw him forward. But when they recognized he was a Jew, a single outcry came. Now, notice. They shouted for two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. They shouted for two hours. You know, I had an opportunity to travel quite a bit with different sports teams. And I I can remember standing in the middle of Fulton County Stadium when the Rams were playing the Atlanta Falcons back in the days where they were doing the ah, you know, little chop thing they had going for them there. And, um, and, and, uh, you know, in the whole place, I mean, you're standing in the middle of the the stadium and you can just hear 50,000, 60,000 people and it just echoing throughout. Ah, and it's like, man. And then, you know, if you would score and you would win, you'd shut them all up. But, man, they were loud, and they would do it for 5, 10, 15 minutes at a time. Two hours? Could you imagine being somewhere where they're chanting, beat L.A. for two hours straight without taking a break? These people were nuts. Two hours. At the end of the two hours, and we'll put it all together with this, I love this. Because not only is the new life in Christ one of planning one of persecution and one of peace, God's peace. It surpasses all understanding. It also involves God's protection. Can you imagine? I mean, just picture the scene. 25,000 people shouting for two hours. It says, and after quieting the multitude, the town clerk, the mayor of Ephesus, gets up and just puts up his hands and 25,000 people all shut up right away. And there's silence. And notice what happens here. Men of Ephesus... What man is there, after all, who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, the image which fell down from heaven? Since then, these are undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. He quieted the crowd. And what he said as he quieted them was, these people are innocent. They haven't done anything wrong. They're not blasphemers of our goddess. They never said anything. All they did was preach Christ. And when you preach Christ and people came to faith, they just walked away from Artemis and stopped worshiping her and stopped worshiping the idols. But they never said anything bad about her. We need to become people who focus more on Christ than on the negatives of what other people believe. Preach Christ and Him crucified. When you start preaching on the negatives of what other people believe, they take it personally, and then all they can think about is how to defend what it is they believe rather than look at and examine the claims of Christ. Preach Christ and Him crucified. They didn't rob our temples. They didn't blaspheme our goddess. So then if Demetrius... And so what he's saying is, hey, you know what? Don't worry about it. This is going to go away. Little did he realize how foolish that statement was. Because while all the world at that time worshipped Artemis and very few worshipped the Lord Jesus Christ... Today, you'll find no one on the face of the earth that worships Artemis, but millions who worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? That's awesome. And he went on and said, you know what? We're going to get in trouble with Rome. So the bottom line is this. If you got a problem, take it up to the local legal officials. If somebody wants to press a charge, press a charge. But we're all about justice. We're all about truth. We're all about presenting the facts. We're a, a civilized culture. And if you've got a problem, Demetrius, with these people and what they're doing, then bring it before the local authorities and they'll hear your case. And there's no record historically that that ever took place. But the bottom line of all of this is this. And he said, just go home. I like that. My favorite verse in the Bible is, and it came to pass. And you're in the midst of whatever that trial is, whatever that persecution is, and you know what? We can just trust the fact that this too has come to pass. Because even if it's God's way of taking us out, it has come to pass. And now absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. What's the worst thing that happened to you this year? Somebody kill you because of your faith in Christ? If you know the Lord, that's the best thing that could ever take place. 
Absent from the body, present with the Lord. I'm thinking, you know what? We can't lose. Isn't that awesome? The new life in Christ. Let's close with these challenges. Think about it. How's your spiritual life going? Is it perpetual winter or has spring finally arrived? Number one, never forget this truth. You must be born again. You must be born from above to have the new nature that only God can give. One that's alive to God and dead to sin. You must be born again. The question as you enter a new year that you must ask, take personal inventory is this. When? When have you turned from sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, His death on the cross and the power of His resurrection for your forgiveness? When? If not, do so today. Because today is the day of the Lord. If you hear His Spirit talking to you today, saying, you know what, I've been going to church for years, I believe certain things in my head, but I have never surrendered my heart to Christ. The difference, as a friend and I discussed once, from heaven to hell is 18 inches, because that's about the difference from a person's head to their heart, where a person surrenders their heart. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, but with his mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Today is the day of the Lord. Trust in him as your Savior today. For those of us who have, we must always maintain a clean house before God. Keep coming. Keep disclosing. Keep confessing those things that aren't right before God. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One person, a pure vessel can make all the difference in the world who is obedient to God and walking in obedience with Him. God can use you. He wants to use you. Set goals for God in 2002. Discipleship goals. Sharing the gospel goals. Personal obedience goals. Confession of sin goals. God, name them. God, you know, i got a problem with anger. i got a problem with sexual immorality. i got a problem with selfishness and, and not wanting to give. i got a problem. Whatever that problem is, ask Him to disclose your problem, your sin, and He will. That is one prayer that I've prayed my Christian life that God has never failed to answer. Lord, if there's any wicked way in me, disclose, disclose it to me that I may confess it and turn and walk from it so that I can be more obedient to You and more useful to Your kingdom. Stop entertaining sin. There's nothing fun about it. Ask God to give you the strength to turn back to Him and walk in obedience with Him. And I know, man, it's hard. It may be a relationship. It may be finances. It may be all kind of things in your life. Personal behavior, you know, drinking, drugs, alcohol, uh, you know, smoking, sex, whatever. All those things in and of themselves that are struggles for you. They're the old leaves that are hanging on. But you know what? As you learn and grow in your walk with the Lord and you're dedicated to study the Word of God, let Christ's life living within you shove those old leaves out and replace them with something new. Do whatever he tells you to do in his word. And then just trust him that he knows what's best for you. Father, we just thank you. We love you for your word. We thank you that it's by your grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. We can't mess it up. We can't do it. We can't do anything other than just fall on our knees before you and ask you to forgive us of our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection for our forgiveness. You tell us if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature, that old things pass away. And all things become new. God, help us this year as we walk in obedience to make that new way of living, that new life that's, that's true of us, to be so real and evident to people around us that it attracts.
attracts people to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, help us to be people who are focused on preaching Christ and Him crucified and the power of His resurrection, that are committed to the Word of God, Thy truth, that You would sanctify us and set us apart with Your truth, because Your truth sets people free. God, help us. We love You. We thank You. Use us mightily this year as we determine to be used by You and we set goals for You that have a spiritual significance and have everything to do with eternal things and nothing with temporal. And we just give you all the glory and praise for what you'll do through us. In Christ's name, amen.